This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour across South Australia and into Broken Hill. I'm Cassie Huff and we still have a few more days to go until Christmas, but uh, I'm sure everyone's starting to get ready, maybe hooking in, getting uh, as much rept as you can off your crops to try and lessen the, the load after Christmas. But I know many of you who, who have never had to harvest, or perhaps it's been a long time since you've had to harvest after Christmas, are staring down the barrel of a, uh, a late harvest this year. Now, it seems every second word in agriculture and indeed every other industry is sustainability at the moment. It means different things to different people. So to get everyone in grain on the same page, Grain Producers Australia wants more farmers to come together to discuss it. The last thing I want, and, you know, fairness to bureaucrats, I don't want the government to come up with a plan. I want the industry to formulate it. I would like to see the industry formulate it. And that's the whole reason for it is that, you know, I think government do struggle at times because is it an engagement issue? Is it... I just think that we as an industry, we've got a perfect opportunity to form something, formulate something in sustainability and, and drive it. More on that soon and an update from the SES on how the River Murray is going height-wise and a few other things that have come through as well will occur in about half an hour as well. But as I was saying, uh, there's a lot of focus on crops in the lead-up to Christmas and there's been some wild weather around. Yesterday I heard um, some pretty big falls. I think Claire seemed to cop the worst of it from what I've seen, 12 mils in 20 minutes in one area. If you've copped rain or even hail yesterday, I think there was a little hail in the mid-north as well, let me know. You can text zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. You can also just let me know how things are going when it comes to how your harvest's going. Are you pushing to try and be done by Christmas? I know a lot of you don't stand a chance of doing that. A lot of people have only just started on wheat. So uh, I'm sure it's going to be a busy time after Christmas as well. And it's looking like the weather will heat up. But uh, there's still um, a lot to do in the meantime. And uh, York Peninsula agronomist Craig Davis has been keeping an eye on on things. Good afternoon. G'day, Cathy. So the, we haven't talked that much about the York Peninsula lately, but it's been a bit of a quiet achiever. I've been hearing some excellent crops out of that part of the world. How are things looking? Yeah, the uh, yields uh, and uh, protein levels have uh, been, been pretty good for a lot of people. Obviously, with the softer spring, um, those that maybe didn't put as much nitrogen fertiliser on are suffering low protein, so a reasonable amount of ASW going in the bunkers over there, but uh, there is some really solid results around. And uh, the York Peninsula wasn't necessarily as wet as the mid-north through summer-spring, so it's been a really good result. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes you guys can get a little too much, uh, like the southeast. Uh, is it is it good to be, perhaps not have quite as much? Uh, I suppose there are areas, uh, particularly the um, lower uh, Yorks, that can get wet at times, but um, a lot of the York Peninsula is fairly free-draining and... Uh, uh, generally, you have know, good soil that can handle a, a quite a lot of rain. Um, never quite, quite get as wet as the southeast or Kangaroo Island, though. So, um, but uh, yeah, they've had they've had a pretty good run, and I think uh, a lot of them will exceed uh, 2016 yields. So, um, there's some exciting uh, 
uh, yields out there. Speaking of yields, do you have a ballpark of maybe some of the, the better yields you've been hearing? Because we were talking on the Air Peninsula a week or so ago and um, they were talking eight tonne in some areas there. So we've got a lot of people that are reaping eight, over eight and a half tonne to the hectare and there will be wow. paddocks. I think that it will nudge 10 tonne to the hectare of wheat this year. Um, the coastal lentils um, were very, very good and a lot of farmers were reporting up close to or around four tonne to the hectare of lentils. The central York Peninsula probably won't be quite as good. Um, a bit too much biomass, I think, and just didn't quite set up as well, but there will be certainly over, over four tonne of lentils there, and hopefully some people might jag five tonne of the hectare of lentils this year. Goodness, that'll be a lucrative crop. What about canola? Yeah, the results on canola were really quite solid. A lot of people... Uh, exceeded their uh, spring expectations. Uh, a lot of canola went over three tonnes a hectare. I uh, have heard rumours uh, unconfirmed, and maybe some of your uh, listeners might uh, message in, but I did hear of five tonnes a hectare in the lower north around Freeling uh, in canola. Um, but certainly uh, there's been a lot of crops in the fours uh, around the place. So a lot of people exceeded their canola, best ever canola years by close to a tonne of a hectare this year. Yeah, it's certainly one to remember 2022, isn't it? 2022-23, a lot of people will be reaping into the new year. Um, speaking of uh, the, the harvest dragging on, there was rain around the state yesterday and indeed the day before. A lot of it seemed to have fallen in the, the mid-north. You cover the mid-north and uh, York Peninsula. What have you been hearing? Has there been much damage? Um, we've had falls, I suppose, around that 10 to 15 mils in the area I cover. I haven't had any reports for growers higher than that, but I was aware that Claire did have uh, more, um, and, and some of that was very heavy, so I presume some of that may have actually uh, laid the crop over a little bit more when it's right like this. It tends to uh, go over a bit with the weight of the head, and uh, um, so I think that'll make that harder to reap. The more important thing, though, is uh, whether it flies out quick enough to not affect the falling numbers or the, the uh, quality of the grain and induced sprouting. So we're already failing, falling numbers in a lot of paddocks anyway, and that's only going to get worse with a bit of rain and, and uh, additional sprouting. So the bee people are certainly eager to get out there and, uh, and rip this crop off before it gets too much more weather damage. The, the weather's looking a little bit topsy-turvy, though, with 40-odd degrees coming. Uh, it's going to, um, that's going to frustrate a few people because it'll get too hot there. Will it will it help the falling numbers though? In the short time the frame, yeah, the heat. I, I suppose it'll um, have the potential to shrivel that sprouted uh, sprouted shoot back in. But in terms of uh, the, the falling numbers effect, uh, that would be much more a longer time um, to, to sort of reset that. But in respect to uh, farmers seeing a direct difference, I think it'll be a reduction in falling numbers in the next couple of weeks as they get the rest of this weed off. And um, I'm speaking to agronomist Craig Davis. One thing that's been on a lot of people's minds is this white grain disorder. It's not something that's been terribly common, although it has been seen in South Australia before. I've been hearing farmers have been rejected or um, perhaps had some concerns about it through perhaps more the mid-north. What are you hearing about it? Yeah, so I've been uh, in discussion with uh, Biosecurity SA about um, white grain disorders, and there's a there's a couple that um, uh, that will get detected at delivery. The Mid North had uh, a few years ago and um, identified um, and had some rejections of loads. 
And, and it's differentiated from fusarium, which is the one that can cause toxins. So this, this one doesn't cause toxins, but it's unsightly, and there is a, a limit to what you can uh, accept at receival points, but um, it's not dangerous like the fusarium can be. Um, and it's prevalent in WA, New South Wales, and, and now SA from that, um, that incident a couple of years ago. Um, and it... Yeah, it can be very frustrating because uh, misdiagnosis at delivery point can uh, lead to de- uh, uh, a um, uh, delivery failure, you know, rejection. Um, the farmers could potentially change their harvest to set up to maybe improve that and reduce the number in the sample, but it's a very frustrating thing because, you know, we're just not exposed to it that regularly to have to deal with. So, But I'm anticipating scenarios that medium rainfall mid-north and maybe the upper air peninsula uh, may may be suffering it a little bit. So uh, the area I cover, I, I haven't really come across it though. Right. And are there, I mean, like you said, you haven't really had to deal with it, but are there any um, changes at silos or segregations and things like that? I'm not exactly sure how they're going to handle it, but whether they're going to take an extra, uh, uh, like a, a segregation and then, uh, blend it down because it is accepted to have some in, as I said, it's not toxic, so it's just a visual issue. Um, they can accept a, a percentage uh, in at delivery and they would be able to blend with clean grain to make it more more appealing to the buyer, but I'm not sure how much is going to be out there as to where, what they're going to do or whether farmers can just manage that on farm with the header adjustments or, or their own blending. But um, if there's enough of it, I would anticipate the bulk handlers would, would put some segregations in and then they would deal with that within internally within their own system. Whether they would do that at a discount or not, I'm, I'm not sure. I think in the past they did do it at a discount. Um, so farmers may well cop it on the on the chin there in terms of a price reduction. I do have some calls in with uh, some bulk handlers as well, so hopefully we'll get some more details around that. Obviously, it's not mm-hmm. the area that you are working in. But um, thank you so much for that. It's good to hear. Those are some massive crop numbers coming out of the York Peninsula. I'm sure there are going to be some very uh, happy farmers there, probably some that, that aren't. But, um, yeah, that, those are some good numbers. Oh, Mid-North's got some really good numbers too, so don't discount what's happening in Mid-North and Lower North. I think there'll be some excited people, where, but uh, as you said before, they're keen to get it off as early as they can, and a lot of them will not be finished before New Year's even, let alone Christmas. So um, they'll certainly be frustrated with the weather they've just copped, so hopefully back into it soon enough. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for letting me know how things are going. It'd be good to hear from other people uh, if you're pulling off some good crops or uh, maybe you're concerned about this white grain disorder. You can text me 0467922891. Thanks so much for your time today, Craig Davis. Thanks, Cassie. That was York Peninsula agronomist Craig Davis speaking there. And uh, while we're talking grain, uh, Grain Producers uh, Australia is um, looking at sustainability. When you think of the term sustainable farming, many things might come to mind, but really what does sustainability mean? Well, yesterday Grain Producers Australia unveiled its new sustainability task force, which is aimed to drive sustainability and profitability for grain growers. You might be aware Grain Producers SA has also been looking into this as well. It's very much become quite a a key focus for the industry. South Australian farmer Mark Schilling is the chair of the new task force and says the word sustainable is overused, but it's been a part of farmers' DNA for a long time. Well, sustainability, let's look at sustainability for one thing, is that none of us really know, knew what it was about. Intuitively, 
we as farmers know it, but we've never really put a word around it. And sustainability is actually, you know, key to our farming operations. Genetically, you know, everyone's got a bit of sustainability in them. And my grandfather, my father, they, they're all sustainable farmers. We've done that for years, and that's why we've been successful in agriculture in Australia, because we have sustainability in our DNA. So... It's, it was an opportunity where the state organisations, um, you know, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, WA, everyone's asking the question, and of what is it? The government's even asking the question of what does it look like? So we felt that it was imperative that we put a task force together and uh, understand it and, you know, bring in the experts and let's try to help growers understand where it sits. You know, I, I, I personally have a view on it and, and that is you know sustainability is lots of things it's traceability it's environmental issues that you know what can we do and then we need to actually put some numbers or credentials around it or a certificate because you know we're going to have countries wanting to know you know are you sustainable in that lentil crop that you grew for me and I need to be able to put some bookends on it. So as you mentioned sustainability is broad and can mean a lot of different things what are some of the main immediate goals the task force will tackle well that's up to the the states on the on the chair person sitting there so i've got to listen to lots of different views and then um let's try to get some consensus that's that's how i want to run i actually haven't got a plan that's going to be formulated by all the states and they are going to all work together and come up with a plan so it's a bit early to actually tell that until we meet and we we haven't met on this yet but yeah that's that's something that uh, we'll certainly do and who's making up the task force what's the representation look like uh, well, so that'll be, you know, Queensland, Ag Force, New South Wales Grains, Victorian Grains, Grain Producers SA and the couple of organisations in Western Australia. And look, you know, I've been in the job just on 12 months and getting my head around all these organisations is, has been a, a challenge in itself. But yeah, it's, it's involving everyone in that. And, um, you know, I'll certainly be reaching out to Grain Growers Limited for them to actually get in on the action as well. Um, I, I know that they have a group going on, on that same thing, but, you know, we've got to work, to work with this collectively, not individually. And how will some of that work look? How will it function and operate from a practical level? Uh, <laughs> that is something that we will all discuss because, you know, when work like this happens, we have, you have to have funds to be able to go and do that. So I'll certainly be uh, calling out to our industry organisations, whether that's GRDC or Grains Australia, you know, we'll be looking to engage everyone in this task force to actually come to a good understanding of what this means and how we can move forward because it's a complex, it's a big beast. You can make it as big as you want or you can make it as small as you want. I think we've got to find that balance of where we fit in sustainability and, yeah, have the conversation. The conversation's been thrown at us. We need to sit down and have a you know good, solid conversation, argument, whatever you want to call it, on what it looks like and then... Hopefully we bang something out at the end of it that growers understand and can work towards. Because at the minute, the goalposts are endless. We need to have clear direction for all growers and uh, businesses. 
And speaking of that engagement and conversation, are growers invited to CARM? Are you looking at inviting others across the industry to collaborate with the task force? How can those interested have their say? Oh, absolutely. Like, this is, this is grower-driven. Like, the more growers have an involvement and a say in it, the better off we are. Like, you know, transparency is one of the things that I, I pride myself on. I, we need to be as transparent as possible, and we need growers not in invitation. They shouldn't need an invitation. Pick up the phone, send an email, send a text, do a Twitter, do a, you know, Instagram. Just send in what you want. Because that's how this is going to work, is by participation. If we don't get growers... Participation. The last thing I want, and you know, fairness to bureaucrats, I don't want the government to come up with a plan. I want the industry to formulate it. I would like to see the industry formulate it, and that's the whole reason for it. Is that you know, I think government do struggle at times because is it an engagement issue? Is it? I just think that we, as an industry, we've got a perfect opportunity to form something, formulate something in sustainability, and and drive it. I put the question back to growers you know is this what you want is this the direction i believe it is um because we've got to participate in world markets and you know what i see in some of the leading countries you know you look at europe the iscc you know there's always been a debate there is it fit for purpose for australian farmers jury's out there i don't grow canola so i'm not being pushed into that just yet but the time is coming that it doesn't matter, malt, barley, lentils, chickpeas, whatever, we're going to have those same sort of implications put on us as growers. So we might as well be on the front foot of this and not on the back foot. Mark Schilling, the chair of the new task force, speaking with Dimitri at Panagiotaris there. It is something that uh, industry bodies are really keen for farmers to be involved in, whether you do it through GPA, Grain Producers Australia, or through Grain Producers SA. There's a focus in uh, many of the grain bodies in particular at the moment around sustainability. So do be, get involved and, uh, I guess, help shape it rather than um, be told how it's going to be uh, shaped, as Mark Schilling was uh, outlining there. You're listening to the country hour we've had a couple of texts in with the rainfall uh, jerry's had 10 mil of rain on the 21st of december so yesterday at uh, port victoria T- 10 mil of rain i should say um yeah it's not ideal in the middle of harvest but uh, it's uh, i wonder how hard it came down because a lot of people seem to get it quite hard as well keep the texts coming if you'd like to let know how things are looking i know it was a pretty narrow band but but quite ferocious in some parts text me zero four six seven nine double two. Eight nine one. It is twenty three minutes past twelve. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year, with ten categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators, and farming legends, and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. 
I'll get to weather in just a moment. It's certainly going to be warming up after Christmas in the States. I'll get some more details on that. But in the meantime, there's been another fire at Struan Research Centre outside of Narracourt reported this morning. The fire started at the edge of a green waste pile on the property. The CFS crews responded and were able to prevent the fire from spreading and causing any damage or injury. But the incident is being treated as suspicious. Now, this is actually the third fire to start at the property since the start of November and the investigations are still ongoing. Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven has said that the programs are continuing at the facility with some disruptions as you'd expect and the department is still continuing to assess any ongoing impacts from the three incidents. So not good news there that they're still suffering from um, issues with fire uh, at the Struan Research Facility. But we'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now where I'm joined by Senior Forecaster Jenny Horvath. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So what is in store for us in the lead up to Christmas, Jenny? Okay, so things are stabilising a little bit after that trough moved through um, central and eastern parts yesterday. Still lingering in the northeast today, so we could still be seeing a bit of thundery shower activity across the northeast pastoral district today. And we are seeing a little bit of thunderstorms developing at the moment. Oh, they're probably. Oh, let's say southeast of Lee Creek and um, southwest of Lake Frome at the moment. So a little bit more development there is not out of the question. And again, we will be monitoring those storms as we head into the afternoon period. Another severe thunderstorm could be issued for the northeast pastoral district this afternoon with some heavier rainfall possible at times. That could lead to some flash flooding or we could get some damaging wind gusts. So that's a bit of a watch this space for this afternoon. That trough still actually lingers in the northeast on Friday. Friday as well so before it really starts to move off on the weekend but we are looking at milder conditions further south. Having a look at some of the rainfall that we saw recorded in the 24 hours till 9am this morning with um, yesterday's um, thundery shower activity we saw nearly 30 millimetres of rainfall recorded at Port Augusta, 29 millimetres at Clare, Yongle are picking up around 27 millimetres and up in the far northeast there Moomba picking up 24 millimetres and we did see falls of sort of 10 to 15 millimetres across our eastern um, districts as well as the mid-north um, through there. So there was a bit of um, bit of rain as that went across, um, but that is all contracting to the northeast um, today and gradually over the weekend before clearing away to Queensland. But further south, we've got a high-pressure system at the moment sitting southwest of the, the bite and that's directing a milder um, southerly airstream across um, southern and western parts. Saw quite a lot of cloud around this morning. Some low cloud and potentially some fog around the the mid-north through there, but it is clearing up to some sunny skies with only really that cloud hanging around those southern and far western coasts at the moment, but that will be remaining dry. That high-pressure system, still pretty much south of the bite on Friday again, so a bit of a cloudy start for southern parts and we could see a little bit of light shower activity about our southern coast during the morning but we're not expecting too much with that but as we head towards the weekend we will see that high pressure system drifting out to the Tasman Sea and as it moves those winds shifting more easterly and by early next week more northeasterly and that's when we will start to see some heat coming back into the state so we are looking at pretty much um 
dry conditions over the south again on Saturday. Maybe we're still seeing some of those thundery showers with that trough lingering up in the northeast um, by Sunday for Christmas Day. It looks like it should be a um, pretty dry day throughout and we are looking at those um, temperatures picking up to sort of warm to hot. We could see some local sea breezes keeping the edge off around the coast through there but we are looking to see some heat wave conditions developing out in the west at first on Saturday and then more broadly across the state on Sunday and into Monday. So we are looking at those temperatures heading into the 40s as we head into Boxing Day and next week. So out on Monday we could start to see some um, thundery showers developing in the far west, moving a little bit further on the Tuesday and maybe more broadly on the Wednesday but we do have some uncertainty with that timing as it comes across in the middle of the week but definitely ahead of that we are looking at those very hot conditions. Not expecting too much rainfall, really just up in the northeast with those thundery showers, highly variable broadly between 5 to 15 millimetres but 15 to 35 or maybe a little bit more not out of the question with those showers and storms in the northeast, Cassie. Thanks so much for that, Jenny Horvat there and uh, I believe this is your last day so uh, happy Christmas. Uh, oh, thank you to Christmas. you and your listeners. <laughs> I'll be back next week. Jenny Horvat there. <laughs> Oh, good, good. In the far <laughs> west of New South Wales, uh, it's going to be partly cloudy, high chance of showers in the northeast, slight chance elsewhere. Could be a thunderstorm around. Overnight temperatures falling to between 18 and 23 degrees. Uh, the uh, low, uh, lower western will be sunny. Overnight temperatures there falling to between 15 and 19 degrees, reaching the low 30s. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Great to have your company for the Country Hour today. Now on the program we're going to have an update from the State Emergency Service on the latest River Murray flood situation. And you might be spending some time at, uh, during your summer at the beach and perhaps you might walk along and come across a fan-shaped clam. Well, this uh, it could be a razorfish. They uh, can cause cuts and a bit of issue if you walk on them, but they could also be an aquaculture opportunity. And Australia's only licensed razorfish farmer says he could be ready to go by this time next year. I think everyone's watching and seeing how this is going to play out, but I think once it gets to the stage that we've got razorfish spat available, I think the microscope will be really on top of me then, and I'm sure that people will add a second species to their oyster leases. Just another string to the Air Peninsula's seafood bow. I have never tried razorfish, so I'll be interested to see how that goes. I'll have more on that soon. If you've tried it, perhaps you you know what razorfish tastes like or perhaps you've stepped on one, uh, text me how you feel about razorfish. You can text 0467922891. More to come in the next half hour, but first we have to catch up with the news headlines with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. 
Hello Cassie. In the news this afternoon, Riverland businesses have welcomed the state government's clarification on trade restrictions after announcements earlier this week saw some tourism businesses cancel their bookings. In the announcement, the government said that there's a ban on swimming, fishing, boating and recreational activities on the River Murray, but later clarified that some tour companies could still operate despite the restrictions. Meanwhile, police have confirmed that two people on inflatable mattresses have been cautioned for using the River Murray. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky says that a just peace with Russia means no compromises on Ukraine's sovereignty or territorial integrity. He made the assertion while speaking during a press conference at the White House. And new data released today from Tourism Research Australia shows that SA has recovered 90% of its pre-pandemic tourism value. The state's value now sits at $8.91 billion. Overall, visitor spending has grown by more than $1 billion in three months. More news at 1 o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. Now, we'll head to the River Murray now and just get an update on how things are going. I'm joined by the SES South Australia's Sarah Pulford. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So is it possible to get the latest flow update? I know you've got some expected peaks. They've been moving around a little. What are they at the moment? Cassie, that's correct. So we're, we're really at the sort of the almost uh, imminent arrival of the peak um, so we're still expecting that same range. We can't obviously be, you know, specific, but um, that peak at around 190 to 200 gigalitres a day is definitely um, almost at the border and going to start progressing down the river over the next couple of weeks. And it's, you're talking gigalitres, and we've got quite familiar with the gigalitres, but is there any ability to translate to what that could mean in metres now? Uh, not not just uh, the problem with that is that it's different at every um, point along the river. So you'll appreciate that the shape of the river um, affects that, um, whether there are uh, flood areas, um, low-lying areas, uh, whether there's a bit of a bottleneck, all of that will impact. So not really height, um, but we what we are seeing is, is significantly high flows, and that means speed and volume of water. And that speed and volume of water is what is um, particularly of concern to us for uh, those who who have been um, and have now asked not to be on the river. And yesterday we heard about the levee breach at Tura in the Murray Lands. I understand it's not it's not um, the way that the Pondy breach was. That was quite a fast flowing one. This one's a little bit slower. How's that going now? Yeah, look, that's right. So there was a small breach um, that is now being monitored. It hasn't escalated. Uh, We're keeping a very close eye on that ourselves. Um, There is some power infrastructure in the area and Electronet are keeping a careful monitoring on that as well. Um, But no, there's no escalation. Um, We did identify some houseboat owners. Um, There was a bit of a risk to them being uh, trapped in an area. They've all been spoken to individually by by SAPOL um, and are aware of the risk and, and are doing what they need to do to uh, keep themselves safe. And how's Pondy going? Uh, so for Pondy, we have issued a prepare to isolate. Um, it's, uh, there was obviously, as you say, a levy breach there. Uh, again, we're, we're monitoring, um, but there's no escalation or increase in risk there. But obviously... Uh, those who are within the area that we've already advised that they need to be prepared to isolate hopefully are taking that warning um, seriously. 
And are there any other areas where you're concerned there could be levee breaches? No, nowhere in particular, Cathy, no, but um, those levees are being monitored quite regularly, at least once a day. We're keeping a very close eye on those, and we've got a, a good plan in place that should anything be detected that we think might even slightly be of concern to get that checked out by engineers so that we're, we're really on top of this um, and hopefully making sure that everybody stays safe behind these levees. But, uh, you know, the reality is that, that this is a lot of water. It's, it's uh, you know, water's heavy stuff and it's travelling very fast. And that's why we've got that monitoring place to, to make sure that everything is, is staying as safe and good as we all hope it will. There were some storms around the state yesterday. Has that been cause for any concern? Oh, look, we, we did watch those through very carefully, and obviously there was some rain up in the Riverland and potential for some issues there. Um, but no, uh, in the end, that, that all passed through. It was only about uh, 15 millimetres, I think, worst case, um, and didn't add any risk to the area at all, no. That's good to hear. One story that has been bubbling along for a little while is uh, Lake Bonnie. It was cut off from the River Murray and now green sludge has been reported. Uh, what's the latest advice around Lake Bonnie? Oh, so the, look, the latest advice, you're right. Um, the, the, the lake was cut off from the main river um, in order to prevent um, flooding for local residents and also for some very significant infrastructure in that area. Um, around sewage disposal, so um, that was to keep everybody safe. Um, the bon uh, Lake Bonnie is still quite safe for swimming and for recreational activities. There are some small patches of blue-green algae, but it's, it's by no means the whole lake. It's, it's in localised areas. Obviously, the advice uh, to swimmers or those, um, uh, you know, take, undertaking water activities on the lake to stay away from those small patches um, what we're trying to put into place is some pumping activities in the hope that we can actually um, reduce the impact um, and circulate and aerate the water in those areas that are impacted to improve that situation. And that's, that's literally putting, being put into place as we speak. Are there any plans to reopen the Napa Inlet? Well, we, we simply can't do that um, until the water levels reduce because um, otherwise there are, as I say, significant infrastructure um, and homes and properties that would be impacted if the lake was to, to flood. Well, uh, hopefully um, it's able to get on top of that blue-grain algae issue. As you say, it's, it's not the whole lake, it's just a small area and hopefully just um, some extra circulation. I think you said uh, there that um, there will improve the circulation around the lake. Hopefully we'll, we'll deal with some of those algal blooms. Thank you so much for your time today. No problem at all. Thank you. That was Sarah Pulford from the SES there with just an update on how the river situation is going. We'll move away from that now to uh, another big news story this week, and that is Foreign Minister Penny Wong's visit to China. There's a lot of hope around this, that it could signal a potential improvement in trade agreements with the country. But if the Australian lobster ban is lifted into China, what will happen to the domestic and emerging international markets that have taken that industry's place. Well, seafood retailer and exporter Ferguson Australia Group's managing director Andrew Ferguson says even if the bans are lifted, it would take some time to trust the Chinese market again. Yeah, well, we, we can't uh, forget about China, I, I don't think, because it's our biggest trading partner. So, yeah, good to have relations being reset and hopefully getting back on track. 
Lobster markets did diversify since the initial bans. What might happen to those newer markets if China comes back on board? Well, we'd like to think we could keep diversified you know, as as we've started out, and you know it's hard to, you know, not not ideal stopping and starting and changing, you know, your business plan. Uh, I, I think we've done, a, you know, we spent a lot of money developing new opportunities with new packaging and things for for the local market as well, the local customers that we've got. You know, there's a, there's a lot in it. I guess uh, the, 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 we know China wants the lobsters, uh, and it would be a shame to lose. You know, to to just to go all, all jump back into China again. Now, I'm a little bit mixed, I guess, in my feelings about it because uh, we've been bitten before, and uh, we don't want to get bitten again. And we'd have to make sure that it's uh, you know that the volatility of it goes, you know is, is not there as much. It's sort of interesting question, really. Do you think that relationship's been permanently changed? That exporters might not ever completely trust the Chinese market again. Well. Yeah, you know, there's an element of that. That's for sure, because you wake up one morning, you've lost a whole lot of money, all your lobsters are on the tarmac dying, and uh, you know that was it's it's the risk. You know, there's no warning of it. We wake up and things have changed. So most other markets, we work through problems, and and you know you've got a relationship where you can actually you know, see things coming, but it's hard when you don't see things coming. So yeah, there's an element of of uh, mistrust there that we have to rebuild again, I suppose from both sides, I I guess. So there's a lot of water to pass under the bridge, though, I think, before we get to that stage, I guess. And one of the things that happened in the last few years was an improvement in the domestic market. What might happen to that if lobsters start going back into China? I mean, we're we're, we're like other buyers on the beach. We buy, we have to be competitive to buy lobsters from the fishermen. And uh, if the market, we've got to, if we can't compete and buy fish, well, we just can't buy fish for the, for whatever market. And obviously, we want to achieve the highest prices we can for the lobsters uh, so that we earn the respect and the, and the trust of the fishermen. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's how it works. So, the, obviously, the, the market that pays the, the most money generally gets the, gets the fish, I guess. Now that we're a few days out of Christmas, how has the local demand been? I've been very, very good. You know, we're cooking flat out every day here and Port MacDonald, uh, and a bit in Lincoln today too, I think. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been very good. I mean, the supermarkets have, have got plenty of lobster, I believe. So, you know, it's, it's great. It's great to have the, you know, to be able to look after the local market and have the local people eating our Australian lobster. Yeah, I mean, uh, we do do uh, fish and uh, aquaculture pretty well in this country. That was Managing Director of Ferguson Australia Group, Andrew Ferguson, speaking with Elsie Adamo there. And uh, just say a few of you probably have lobster plans for your Christmas dinner if you're lucky, or pre-Christmas lunch if you're lucky. It's still a bit of a luxury item, even if it has come down in price. So, uh, yeah. Hope that you enjoy some great South Australian lobster, rock lobster, if you are having that this Christmas. It is 18 minutes to one. Half a step forward, put to the pitch. ABC Sports, Summer of Cricket. It's party time. On the ABC Listen app. Every ball. Punching this through the offside. Every catch. That is an extraordinary catch. Every wicket. Free. Oh, wow. ABC Sports, Summer of Cricket. Live on the ABC Listen app. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. 
Hello, I'm Cassie Huff. It's great to have your company today. Now, there's been a lot of focus on the Riverland in the last few weeks as the river rises, but it's not the only issue in the area. There's one that's been bubbling along for almost three years now. Riverland growers are becoming increasingly frustrated as the fight to eradicate fruit fly outbreaks enters into its third year. There's currently 16 outbreaks in the region, but... Authorities say there could actually be cause to be a bit optimistic, which is some good news. Eliza Berlage has this story. I've nearly finished. Have a look at those beautiful cherries. Just, yeah, well, it's just perfect for eating, but a bit late yeah. to be. But pick your own, they're perfect. So. For Anne and Peter Brook, Christmas time usually means the friendly faces of families flocking to pick cherries from their Barmer orchards. Mr Brooks says this year a fruit fly outbreak in nearby Monash has imposed restrictions on their property. Oh, the crop's beautiful this year. Last year we got high old, so we didn't pick a cherry. This year, the crop's better than last year, and we're not going to pick a cherry either. Not a single cherry, so... Uh, not allowed to. Mm. Mm. Yeah, do you remember yeah. when, when the news came through about the, the fruit fly? They, well, the week we started picking. We started picking, put the nets on, on a few of the trees, the early ones started picking. And boxes ready to go. Yeah, to the market. And uh, then we had to just put them off and uh, no more picking. Mm. What will you do with the cherries now? Nothing. They'll all fall on the ground. How do you think Perse is going with eradicating fruit fly? Oh, God, I haven't had a hope in hell. <laughs> this year was bad for fruit fly because it was cool. And uh, not the hot weather knocks around a bit. But, uh, yeah, no, this year has gone mad. So I think we're going to keep fruit fly unfortunately they're yeah. stuff now. They're trying their best but you know what can they do you know it makes they it hard. They need more roadblocks that's what they yeah. need. When Raj Gulman and her husband Juljar Singh Bal took over a successful stone fruit business in Renmark North they didn't factor in the costs of managing fruit fly. It's too much cost coming to us because uh, we are doing the sprays and especially with the wastage. We need to pay the wastage to dumping it and uh, nobody help us we try with the Persa even to help us because this year, because of the weather, too much problem with the fruit, too much soft and uh, hail marks. So everything in go- mostly going into the wastage. So this is a loss. We got also paying to the pick our wastage, the, like a truck coming and to we need to pay to them to pick our wastage. And still the spray is too much costly because they give us their own protocols. So we need to follow their protocols and they're very costly. If you not uh, follow the CA32 spray program, then you need to the fumigation if you want to send the fruit earlier. Fumigation cost or spray cost. This is the main one. And the little things coming, like you need to follow the audits and send the paperwork to them. The other one is you need to buy the special fruit fly nets. Do you think that primary industries will be able to eradicate fruit fly? I don't know. I don't know because every... Two months, they say, oh, we are finished in December. Then the two months more, two months more. I don't think so. I don't think so. We are, I don't have any hope. What do you think about the strategies and efforts that they've done so far? And do you think they could do more? Yeah, they, they are doing good because I try attend their every meeting, try to. But still they have need to do something about the backyards, mostly the backyards. And they need to, if they have a protocols, they need to tell the whole growers, follow the protocols. This year, too much confusion. Maybe that's why they don't say, oh, we don't understand, we can't follow. Mostly, this all outbreaks, mostly in the backyards. So what should the state be doing about backyard fruit growers? I ask the same question to them. They say, oh, we are checking. They put the 
traps on the maybe every house which they have the fruit but still they have nothing happen nothing because two years it was long time we can't see any hope the state's primary industries department has spent 20 million dollars so far on trying to eradicate the pest nick seckham who leads purse's fruit fly response team says there's still hope to wipe it out the numbers are looking pretty good leading into christmas the numbers have dropped right off from an early peak in spring so the signs are good that what we're doing is working Look, I think it's never going to be an easy task and we've got a big mountain to climb in front of us, but we've got a whole lot of tools that we know work against fruit fly and we've applied them lots of times before and we know they work. So there is reason to be optimistic and there is reason to hope that we will get rid of fruit fly. It's a matter of knocking it off bit by bit, outbreak by outbreak, and then we'll get there. That was Prime Industries Fruit Fly Manager Nick Seckham ending that story by Eliza Burlage. Still a long way to go, but hopefully the region is able to get on top of uh, fruit fly as uh, it, it is causing such a big issue there. It's been pushed to the background a little with the, the River Murray flooding, but it's still very much a concern for growers in that part of South Australia. Now, I was asking you about razor fish and whether you tried them, whether you liked them, and it seems people are pretty fond of the uh, wedge-shaped shellfish. Uh, I've got a text here saying razor fish is very yummy, not unlike scallop. I love scallops. Maybe I should give this a go. And uh, someone else says razor fish are great. Do keep your texts coming. Love to know how you cook them, uh, whether you, I don't know, use them for um, all sorts of things. Text me 0467 because if you do like razor fish you, you might be able to get your hands on them a little more easily soon because Australia's only licensed razor fish farmer says he hopes to have spat in the water by this time next year. The shellfish, now this is interesting, I didn't know this, can be battered, pickled or eaten fresh. There you go. I really am going to have to, to give this a go. James Boylan is the director of Australian Razor Fish and currently has a permit to get razor fish from Streaky Bay and then relocate them to Smoky Bay. He says if things go well as he tests the market, he might be able to find people who might like to try to buy razor fish. Yes, well, we've had quite a bit of success, or a lot of success, really. We've um, been able to have the opportunity to test the markets uh, for the race fish, and uh, it's come back really well. We're getting between five to seven dollars a razor fish uh, in its whole shell form. So, and they're paying all the freight. So, it's a very lucrative business at this stage of the game. What sort of markets are you are you getting? Well, the markets are all in Australia because there's only a small handful that we've been able to trial in the market, and that's mainly in Melbourne and Sydney. And uh, there is some in Adelaide. How much are you producing at the moment, James? No, we've, we're at the, only at the trial stage of being able to trial the market. So uh, it's at a very small stage, purely just to see what the market value may be. And have you come across any hurdles uh, out there in the, the water, James? Well, one of our biggest hurdles that we had to uh, get over was that we had to get a hatchery to be able to do our spawning for us. And I'm happy to say that uh, air shellfish are going to take on the razorfish as part of one of their species in the Kelly Bay hatchery. So that was a big windfall for Australian razorfish. Is there others, other say like oyster growers or, or um, others are looking to get into the, um, something like this that have come to you and said, oh, I would like to grow razorfish as well? 
I think uh, because everyone's watching and seeing how this is going to play out, but I think once it gets to the stage that we've got race fish spat available, I think the microscope will be really on top of me then, and I'm sure that people will add a second species to their oyster leases. And going out there, you know, uh, picking up the, the razor fish while you're out in the water, James, what, what's the feeling like? Because it has taken a, a number of years to get to this point. Oh, well, there's a bit more to it than that. We've got a, a, an area that's been deemed that is a razor fish area, which um, the stock has to come from after it's been relocated. So from Streaky Bay, from a, a lease down there that's been nominated by the Persian Fisheries. So, yeah, there's a bit in it just to be able to try the market section, but it's really going to come of age when we had the race fish spat to be able to start from scratch. Do you know a, a sort of a timeline of that, that, James? Well, I'm hoping that this time this time next year we should have all the razor fish spat under the sun with a bit of Irish luck. Director of Australian Razor Fish, James Boylan. Air Shellfish has come on board as the hatchery that will produce the spat for the razor fish. The company already produces oyster spat and seaweed for livestock feed and CEO Alan Bryant says he's excited to be involved with razor fish as well. It's it's an interesting product and there's we're now just understanding Globally, there is limited hatchery capability for this, and now we're looking to support uh, Smoky Bay's advancements uh, to develop a hatchery. And we're, we've got a long way to go, but we're certainly going to use the energy we have in the business at the moment to look for yet another product. We're looking to create a new industry in South Australia. It's, it's going to be another opportunity for oyster growers in the future to actually enhance the revenue they can create out of their leases by having an extra product coming off their lease. So it's a, it's a great opportunity for the future. And something I'd like to try. CEO of Air Shellfish, Alan Bryant, ending that story from Brooke Nindorf. And while we're speaking about seafood, make sure you're listening into the program tomorrow because we're going to have a bit of a snapshot of what is available fresh in South Australia when it comes to seafood, prawns, perhaps even some yabbies and stone fruit. I'll have lots to chat about tomorrow for uh, Christmas Day, what you might be able to put on your plate for Christmas Day. But finally... Have you heard, I don't think mallee fowl is particularly um, uh, something that you would consider for Christmas, partly because it's one of Australia's most vulnerable species. But it is a robust and rugged bird, so there is work to try and get it back in good numbers. And to help protect it, the Bounce Back and Beyond project was initiated five years ago, and it seems to be working. SA Aridland's senior community ecologist Chris Bell says the discovery of 12 new mallee fowl mounds is a big jump from last year and it's a good sign that the bird is making the most of the favourable conditions. We had two consultants go out um, do some work for us funded um, through the National Land Care uh, Program and that's Perry Stenhouse and Peter Hamnett and they went out and monitored a whole bunch of mounds. I think they checked about 140-ish mounds 
which is a pretty big undertaking, and they found 12 active mounds um, out of that 141 mounds. So that's actually, it doesn't sound like a huge amount, but that's that's pretty good. And certainly compared to last year, we found two and a half active mounds. I'll say a half because it was difficult to tell with one whether it was it had been recently abandoned or, um, or whether it was still being worked. They just weren't doing a very good job of it. Um, but either way, um, there was a lot more active mounds this year than last year. So, um, so we're really pleased about that. And what does that increase tell us about the Malifowl's activity? Like with everything in ecology, you have to sort of be very cautious about any conclusions drawn. For a start with that 12 active mounds compared to the, the three, say, last year, we ran a LIDAR exercise where we basically fly an aircraft or get contractors to fly an aircraft over areas where we don't know where the mounds are present. And um, this LIDAR sort of radar technology will detect what looks to be mounds and then from that we go out and ground truth what the the aerial radar told us they think is mounds and we go out and say well yes that they thought it was a mound and this is a mound so we actually did monitor about 50 extra mounds this year so while we did have a lot more active mounds this year we also monitored more mounds but either way if you just look at the mounds that we monitored last year to this year uh, there was about a threefold increase in active mounds and so we can we can confidently say that mallyfowl nesting activity is has increased this year compared to last year and looking at the mallyfowl just how vulnerable are they are they an endangered species yeah so um, they are both um, federally and, and state listed and under the EPBC they're vulnerable so yeah they've seen massive declines in their population since uh, since European settlement of Australia they're, they're facing a huge number of threats some of them are fairly historical um, but habitat loss and fragmentation is obviously a, a, a big thing that sort of hit their numbers fairly early in, uh, after European settlement but they also um, are obviously threatened by feral predators such as cats and foxes um, they've also um, sort of compete for food and um, their mounds can get trampled by livestock and um, large, larger feral herbivores. And I guess more recently and going forward, um, there's also the issue of um, climate change and changed fire regimes also affecting them. So they're, they're being hit from quite a few different places. Um, they're actually quite a robust and rugged bird that can survive in some pretty pretty tough conditions, but they're, they're just being hit by so many different things right now that, yeah, their numbers are massively low um, compared to how they were historically. And what other programs are in place to protect them? So thankfully, we've got really good information on, on Malifowl. There's a really good coordinated, sort of national level coordinated and standardised data collection. So we've got a really good idea of how many Malifowl we have and, and what their trends are doing. As I say, they are EPBC listed, so they're also included as a, one of the top 100 priority species in the government's the federal government's threatened species strategy. So that thankfully means there's quite a lot of uh, stuff going on. Uh, we, uh, we ourselves are part of the, we've been running a Bounce Back and Beyond program, which allows for levels of predator control. So we um, try our best to control for foxes, and then we compare um, malifowl activity both within uh, fox controlled and um, adjacent uncontrolled areas to see what effect that's having on malifowl activity. There's a national malifowl recovery team, and they're tasked with implementing the national recovery plan. So there's a really good nationwide coordinated effort to put in measures in place. There's even areas and i know one personally it's david bromwin heath over at pool atop in central new south wales are doing a, a reintroduction uh, they've, they've released eggs and chicks into uh, fenced enclosures and so there's all sorts of uh, bits and pieces going on to 
a understand better what what are the key threats to Mali Fowl and, and b also increase their numbers and um, yeah reintroduce them to some areas. SAR Atlanta's senior community ecologist Chris Bell speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. That's all we have time for today, but uh, do go online to abc.net.au slash rural if you'd like to find out what's happening in agriculture across this state and indeed the country. We will keep broadcasting through the holiday period though, so just make sure you're listening between 12 and 1 o'clock. We've got a text from Steve saying that uh, locusts are thick just south of Burra. Something to keep an eye on there. We might take a look at that. Thanks for your text, Steve. Otherwise that's all we have time for today. It is coming up to one o'clock. Almost time for news. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.